You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, I am joined by Dr. Teal Benavides. As an associate professor at Augusta University, Teal has a passion for describing, understanding, and addressing disparities among autistic individuals, including racial and ethnic minorities and autistic adults. Teal earned her PhD from Virginia Commonwealth University in 2014, and since then has been awarded a number of research recognitions and grants, one of which we would like to talk about today being from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI. Am I saying that abbreviation correct, Teal? You are, Matt, and thanks so much for having me on your podcast today. Oh, of course. It's our pleasure to have you. This project from PCORI is titled Priority Setting to Improve Health Outcomes. Autistic adults and other stakeholders engage together. So we want to talk about this project, the current updates to a systematic review on autism you're working on with AOTA, and the importance of involving consumers in developing practice guidelines for OT practitioners. There's a lot we wanted to cover today. <laughs> and before, before we dive into those topics, Teal, I want to ask what led you to this specific research emphasis? Well, I think that's a really um, interesting question, Matt, because I think as all occupational therapists start off in their careers, they have an area that they they think is really important. And as you learn and um, interact with clients and parents and others, you start to think differently about the world and how services are delivered. And I know a lot of OTs go through this right after school. But one of the things that I started learning was that despite the fact that we have OT interventions for children on the spectrum, whenever I'd interact with parents or caregivers and their kids, I started to recognize that it didn't meet all of their occupational needs and goals. And what we were hearing from parents is, is that they really wanted to be able to be out in the community with, with their kids. And some of the interventions delivered in clinic settings don't always get to that sort of community participation goal. In addition, I was also hearing from adults who were sharing with me in a, in a lot of different settings that, you know, our OT interventions didn't always meet their needs um, and sometimes were seen as insulting, as, as um, trying to change who they were. So as I started to explore both OT's focus on um, working with individuals on the spectrum and their caregivers, it made me start to question some of the things that I was either practicing or thinking about in, in my research. Um, and so I, I completely switched gears from research that really focused on sensory processing and sensory integration, which is really at the body level, structural level type research, to thinking about service delivery and how we engage our clients in delivering the care that they need and want. Um, and so then that led to some other questions about how to authentically partner with those that we're doing research on, or unfortunately, you know, not involving in research. And, and I, I hope to change that. So that's really what led to this focus. Yeah. It, it sounds like you're really 
set out to improve intervention for autistic individuals and the way you describe that sounds like you want to improve engagement in interventions and therapy among that population. Um, what what are some of the specific goals of your work and research? Well, um, I think that my goals really are to understand what the service delivery needs are of autistic individuals and their caregivers. That understanding of the service delivery needs will lead to better research about how we can meet those needs in practice. And so instead of saying, I want to research this specific OT intervention, I'm asking, what are your needs as a, as a human being? What are your goals in life and what's important to you? And do we have the research to support helping you achieve those goals? So a lot of my research that uses different study designs. So I do large scale claims data and survey research to sort of understand where the gaps are. And then I do participatory research to really get at what what consumers and other clients want from the research that we might be developing. So I have a pretty broad research focus but it all aims to improve service delivery and address the service needs of clients on the spectrum and their caregivers. This all sounds so interesting to me. I know as a, a field, we all want to be holistic in, in treating our patients, but we also want to be evidence-based. And sometimes it's difficult to do both of those um, at the same time. Uh, so I'm really interested in learning more about your research and think it's going to have some great implications for me and for our listeners. So let's dive into it and talk about this PCORI study. Teal, what is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute? What are their goals as an organization? So PCORI is a newer group that was formed from the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act mandated that this independent organization receive funds from insurance companies. Uh, So insurance companies are taxed and um, that money goes to PCORI to sustain its mission. And PCORI's primary mission is to produce research that helps patients and other stakeholders make better healthcare decisions. PCORI's goal is is to not really get into the mechanisms of why a condition is occurring, somewhat like NIH has a focus. But PCORI's goal is to say, if a client walks into a healthcare setting and they want to know how X treatment will help them, is there sufficient evidence to help that patient make a decision about things that are important to them? And what's really great about PCORI is that they require patients and other stakeholders to be a part of the research team. So the the stakeholder and research teams are driven by what those patients, consumers, clients want, and the research is informed by those people who are going to be directly impacted by the research. Awesome. This sounds like a new frame to look at and conduct research that could make it a lot more practical and easily applicable to stakeholders, to therapists and uh, people receiving these types of evidence-backed 
interventions. So it, it sounds like an awesome organization. And I did look up your study and was able to find what is, is stated as the goal uh, of your study. And that is to comprehensively prioritize the specific positive health and healthcare outcomes desired by autistic adults, identify potential evidence-based interventions from their perspective, and to engage other stakeholders in implementing their prioritized interventions through a patient-centered outcomes research or comparative effectiveness research study. So, of course, that's that's pretty research-heavy language. <laughs> um, but, Teal, can you tell us how your study works towards these goals? Certainly. First, I really want to provide a shout out this, that this isn't my study. I, I, I appreciate that I am the, the first named project lead on it, and I have been honored to work alongside a really fantastic research team and and the decisions on that research team were shared. So even though I'm listed as the first lead, it doesn't mean that it was driven by me. Um, and so I want to recognize that Dr. Stephen Shore, who is a professor at Adelphi University, was my co-pilot in this project, if you will. He and I were in charge of the project team, and we were coordinating on every aspect of this project to make decisions, communicate effectively with our team. And I just, I learned so much from working with Dr. Shore, with Stephen. So it is a shared project. And, and I think that, you know, that shared ownership of this project, both from our project team and our community council, which was a group of autistic individuals and caregivers and other stakeholders, we, we share the responsibility of decision-making. And so when we talk about it today, um, I'd like to just recognize that I, I'm just part of a, a broader group that was working to achieve that goal. Absolutely. It, it takes a village and you had an awesome research team, including your, your co-pilot or co-captain, Dr. Shore. We definitely are happy to shout everyone who is involved on this project out and thank them for, for the work that they're doing to make research more consumable, more applicable, and more stakeholder involved. Um, I think those are goals we, we all support. I don't think I answered your question, though. So. <laughs> we'll, we'll circle back. How does this study that, that you and this team worked on work towards um, these goals that were outlined? So we did a couple of things to foster um, a shared sense of ownership over the goal of comprehensively prioritizing the health and healthcare outcomes that were desired by autistic adults. So the first thing we did is, is we made sure that our team was representative of autistic perspectives. Um, and so our team was primarily autistic, and the process and procedures we used to inform decisions really allowed for decision-making to occur not in a linear fashion. So when we set out to work together, we, we figured out how to communicate effectively uh, first as a team. And we made sure that we respected everyone's communication preferences. So when we set out to work together, we said, well, how can we make this team a place where everyone has a voice? Part of that is making sure that the relationships that you have are authentic and are not hierarchical. So 
you know, you recognized in the beginning that I have a PhD and while that might be great, it is not the only expertise in the world that's necessary or important. And so recognizing that my autistic colleagues that are on the project and are in our community council have a variety of expertise, both as lived experience as an autistic individual, as professionals in the world, in the working world. We have individuals who are are nurses by background, social workers by background. And so these varieties of experiences and um, expertise needs to be respected. And so we recognized everyone's expertise and we we wanted to make sure that we created a, a working team that respected all that expertise. And so unlike maybe a hierarchical research project where you have people in charge making decisions and then the, the people that are, you know, sort of helping to implement the study, the research assistants or other team members that sort of carry out the, the work, we really tried to level the playing field and make sure that my voice and Stephen's voice as the project leads were not any more important than our community council's voices. And, and that was that was important. So that's one thing that we did. Uh, we did not use titles, so I don't go by doctor. And we tried to not emphasize other degrees. I think, you know, in academia, we, we, we sometimes hide behind whatever degrees we have. Um, and that can create a hierarchy of expertise, which we wanted to avoid. And then the other thing that we did is we remained open in our communication and our decisions. And so, for example, we sought out to originally in the proposed project to use social media as a way of gathering input on preferred health outcomes and interventions that people wanted to see research on as autistic individuals. At the time we were doing the project, the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, with Facebook was unfolding. And in, and we already had our IRB approval for social media. We had spent a lot of time figuring out how to make the social media engagement safe for autistic individuals. But in conversations with our community council, we learned that social media was no longer felt to be a safe place. And so, you know, we were flexible in our approach and said, okay, well, if this is no longer a safe place, we need to change how we engage the community and gather these priorities. And so we completely scrapped the social media and we switched gears and we uh, instead sought IRB approval to conduct focus groups and surveys. So, you know, that's just one example of listening to our partners and being responsive to the desires and approaches that were important to them at the time of working through that priority setting activities, if you will. Absolutely. It sounds like you and your team really emphasized communication, inclusivity, and confidentiality, uh, which I think is an example of a good process or approach to any type of work to help everyone involved gain trust um, and respect for one another and then begin to collaborate and work together towards um, a common goal. Why, Teal, is it so important to gain and and get this uh, stakeholder input about the types of interventions uh, used by OT practitioners? Yeah, I think that's like the 
million dollar question. So the, you know, our profession was founded on principles that very much emphasize the holistic nature of an individual's occupations that are valuable to them. And as an occupational therapist, I firmly believe that if we stay rooted to our foundations, that we will work successfully with clients. However, I think that in more recent decades, our practice as as occupational therapists has become more medical model. And because of the settings in which we work in and the types of external pressures we're forced to sort of practice under reimbursement and other factors, we sometimes lose the uh, focus on what might be going on with a client. And we've medicalized the interventions we deliver. And I think that's a very dangerous direction to go in. And so it's important to involve stakeholders in all aspects of our evaluation and intervention, because we can't assume we know what they want. I think that many, many occupational therapists in practice, if asked about working with individuals on the spectrum, will probably run through a list of quote unquote deficits that the individuals might perceive. And these include things such as, and I'm using terms from our OTs, right? I, I really dislike this language, okay? I don't, I don't promote this language, but things like sensory dysfunction or things like um, restricted and repetitive behavior or things like deficits in social communication and reduced eye contact. Those really deficit-based approaches that we've latched onto as OTs to sort of think about how to fix or cure or address, remediate, you know, from our practice framework, that remediation approach doesn't get at, um, I think, what clients are sharing with us. And so stakeholders, when we talk to them about what they want, really they appreciate and um, feel that their autistic strengths are should be celebrated. And I agree that we shouldn't be medicalizing many of the things that our OT profession believes are deficits. And by including our stakeholders and understanding their strengths, their autistic superpowers, and also what they want from, from intervention, uh, we'll hear probably... Uh, more and more that individuals want to participate and they would like to have compensatory strategies to help them in a variety of different settings. And so when we start to listen more than we start to, you know, intervene without digging, um, I think we'll learn that a different approach is needed. And so stakeholders really will tell us what, what, what we should be focused on in our interventions and our evaluations and Um, I think we'll hear more about the social model of disability and its importance, focusing on the outside factors that are influencing participation rather than factors intrinsic to the individual. I love that. I love that. I think it it can be really easy to to feel those external pressures or or forces like reimbursement um, and become more medicalized in in working with patients uh, across across OT settings, specifically autistic individuals, but really taking a step back, listening to them and including them 
can can help intervention become more meaningful and therefore more effective uh, overall. Thank you for sharing that that recommendation. What what have you learned through conducting this study, Teal, from autistic consumers and stakeholders that you would want therapists and and OTAs uh, to know? Well, there's a lot, so I think I'm just going to have to hit on a few highlights. I've already mentioned that listening and learning from our clients should never stop. Um, We really can do better uh, in that regard. And ensuring that relationships you establish with clients are authentic and are based on a mutual respect. We've sort of touched on that. To get more specific about what we learned from this particular project about interventions and outcomes that are important to autistic individuals, We learned that autistic individuals really want and value research that addresses quality of life outcomes, mental health outcomes such as depression and anxiety, and desire approaches that will help them participate in social activities. So social well-being was one of our top outcomes that was identified And and then last but not least, we learned that sleep was a critical outcome for individuals. And our OT practice framework was recently revised and sleep is now more prominently on there. And so I think OTs and OTAs should be aware that we have skills to help individuals achieve better health and well-being across those different outcomes. In terms of the interventions that we identified that were desired we heard three major themes across the priority setting work. The first was that mental health is a huge priority for autistic individuals and achieving better mental health through self-managed interventions is essential. So people identified that they wanted to know more about research that will help them self-manage their anxiety or depression They wanted community available approaches that they wouldn't necessarily have to seek a referral for. So things like yoga or Tai Chi, things that could be self-managed by the individual were important, mainly because of folks describing really poor interactions with the medical community. So mental health was a big, a big priority area. The second major area that we learned was in gender and sexual health. So we heard from many individuals that uh, gender specific needs were not being met across the lifespan. So um, although prevalence estimates suggest that males are much more likely to be diagnosed than females, we had very, very many females who contributed saying you know, my needs are not being recognized or met and that my um, autistic experience is different as a a woman. Um, Sometimes people reflected on the need for more research about how hormones affect the autistic experience, things like childbirth, parenting, and relationships were, were sometimes challenging and people wanted strategies and supports for managing those. And then last but not least, we heard that individuals, um, non-binary individuals needed support and resources. So individuals on the spectrum are significantly more likely to identify as non-binary 
but that sort of double um, experience of being non-binary and autistic creates huge barriers, both in healthcare and in, in the occupations that are important to them. Um, so gender and sexual health. I should mention along the lines of gender and sexual health that folks described experience of sexual assault and abuse and not receiving sufficient information or education um, about sexual well-being as they grew up. And Matt, I think that as OTs, we address sexual health and well-being with other client groups. I'm thinking of spinal cord injury, right? Um, I'm thinking of other groups that might have a need to figure this out with a healthcare provider about how their experience impacts sexual well-being. And unfortunately, many autistic individuals don't receive the support they need in terms of their sexual health and well-being. We had one individual share with us, you know, what are the two primary ways somebody learns about uh, sexual health as they're growing up, either through their parents or through peers. But as that one individual reflected with us, she said, you know, my parents didn't talk about it with me and I didn't have a peer group that accepted me. So I didn't know anything. Um, And so I think we have some work to do as a profession to sort of address gender and sexual health. So, so far we've talked about two areas, mental health as a primary area of focus, gender and sexual health. And then the third area that consistently came up in our priority setting work was in addressing provider lack of knowledge and access to care. So sort of that process of achieving and maintaining one's health through our healthcare system is very difficult for autistic individuals. People either don't understand autism, don't have resources to accommodate needs in the healthcare setting, and the healthcare setting is sometimes very traumatic. So addressing access to healthcare was a huge priority. And fortunately, our OT practice framework revision includes uh, that focus on, on management of healthcare. So I'm hoping that that aligns well with our OT's up-and-coming focus in, in the OTPF4. So those three areas, I think, are, are the top things that people wanted us to focus on in terms of research and practice. Absolutely. Those are three of the most important areas to anyone's health to always be considering. Uh, From your perspective, Teal, how can OT practitioners address those three areas in intervention when working with autistic individuals? So uh, I think, you know, we as OTs have the skills to focus on uh, first a occupational profile of our clients that allows us to authentically engage in priority goals and areas for that individual. So first, I would recommend doing an occupational profile with your client and uh, identifying goals that are important to them. And then based off of those goals, developing a treatment plan in collaboration with that individual that addresses them. So for example, if clients are expressing needs for being able to access healthcare settings and other settings in in their community that might pose barriers to them, then the therapist should be working from a social model of disability framework 
And instead of say remediation um, and thinking about how to change the individual, focusing on how to help that individual develop strategies to manage the environment that they might be going into, help that individual recognize when to request accommodations or support from their healthcare provider. So we can work with clients to, to learn about the fact that they can they can ask their provider to create a more welcoming waiting room. Or if they can't, you know, go to the front desk, check in and say, I'm going to wait in my car. Can you, you know, call me when I'm going to be taken back to the waiting room? One, one client said to us, we have buzzers for restaurants when I go to check in for a table. And that buzzer allows me to sit in the car and know when my table is ready. But we don't have that for healthcare settings. So how easy would that be for us to be thinking through um, environmental adaptations. We're trained in that as OT. So be thinking through how to help people compensate, prevent, restore, as opposed to the remediate approaches in OT. I don't have any specific interventions, although if people would like, we do have some evidence-based interventions for addressing mental health, particularly those that use cognitive behavioral approaches and mindfulness approaches have emerging evidence to support their use for adults on the spectrum. And so uh, we published a systematic review on, on that. And depending on the ther- therapist's skill, they may be able to implement some of those interventions. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that example and pointing uh, me and the listeners to uh, some additional resources as well. What One thing I'll ask is where any listeners could find that systematic review um, if they're interested in learning more about those mental health interventions. Uh, sure. So it's published in the journal Autism. It was published in 2020. I'd be happy to share the link with you. And and I should I should say that there were some other priority interventions that were identified for which we do have some emerging evidence as well, but not in autism. So exercise, Tai Chi, and yoga are all evidence-based interventions for mental health, but we don't have sufficient evidence among adults on the spectrum that those are effective for helping mental health. And I also have some suicide and suicide prevention and crisis response materials that I'm happy to share with your listeners, particularly since we know that adults on the spectrum are significantly more likely to experience suicidal ideation. Um, I think it's important for practitioners to know how to manage those crises um, and situations. Absolutely. Yeah. If you could share the link to any of those resources with me, I'll be sure to Mm -hmm. include them in the episode description. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think I could add some other things too. for example, addressing gender and sexual health or access to health care. I think we could absolutely hear from you about addressing uh, gender and sexual health and also um, accessing health care. So I think one of the things about accessing health care that's very challenging for adults, and we've talked about the importance of communication earlier is that many adults on the spectrum, when they experience anxiety, may lose language or have insufficient language to communicate their needs when distressed. 
some research supports different augmentative communication devices and apps on the phone that allow individuals to communicate when they lose language. And there was an article published recently in Autism and Adulthood that talk about the different types of apps and communication devices that adults on the spectrum prefer and use. And that's published by Zisk and Dalton in 2019. I can share that link. Um, and they provide some names of specific tools that, that might be useful. So OTs can be working with individuals to identify ways to communicate when under stress. Um, and that might be through apps on phones or other, other ways. In addition, OTs have a really great mind for thinking about adapting contexts and environments. And so thinking through the different environments that somebody might be going into, particularly in terms of healthcare, will help them work with that individual and possibly their healthcare provider to create accommodations to the physical environment, maybe the waiting room or the process of waiting for care, maybe to the um, treatment room, and also to the kinds of um, information that the person might need. So for example, if the healthcare provider is going to be doing a certain exam, working to help the autistic individual watch a video about what that exam will in, entail, um, the types of tools or things that they should expect seeing, or those are all aspects of modifying a person's expectations uh, of, of the type of care they're receiving. And then last but not least, individuals can learn skills to advocate for what they need. So promoting self-determination in those healthcare settings is critical. And there's a healthcare toolkit that exists um, and is evidence-based. It's been studied um, and is, going, is ongoing evaluation right now, particularly by Christina Nicolaitis and colleagues at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And that healthcare toolkit, it's called the Aspire Healthcare Toolkit, is available at autismandhealth.org. And autistic individuals and providers can use that tool to create a personalized accommodations list that they can use to request specific healthcare accommodations when visiting a provider. And so those are some things that I would recommend OTs be involved with when improving healthcare and management of healthcare among autistic individuals. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing these resources and recommendations. Sure. I really think we could record a whole entire episode on each of these three areas of working with autistic individuals. So you're going to have to come back on the show now. <laughs> just uh, just going to break the news for that early. Um, <laughs> and also, I guess uh, I want to ask about that, that last area you identified with gender and sexual health. What are some recommendations for practitioners um, to, to consider when working with autistic individuals? How can they address gender and sexual health? I think it's really important to first recognize and ask what somebody's gender identity is when working with them and make sure that intake forms and other forms are respectful of non-binary individuals. So I think in our healthcare system in general, we can do a better job of working with non-binary individuals. So that's the first thing, right, is, is using those strategies that we know improve communication, 
for individuals who may not identify as either male or female. And that includes practitioners seeking out that information, as well as respecting that person's preferred pronouns. So I think that goes for anyone who's working with non-binary individuals in the healthcare setting. We do have OT researchers who are engaged in understanding gender and sexual health among autistic individuals. And Kirby at the University of Utah is doing important work with others to understand the gender and sexual experience and is somebody who I would defer to in terms of her knowledge about this topic. But, you know, when we think about gender and sexual health, the biggies, when we think about working with individuals, are there is sometimes a mismatch between partners' uh, sensory needs and how that impacts um, sexual well-being. And so helping autistic individuals understand their preferences and needs for touch and smell and visual input um, can help them better ask and communicate with partners about their needs. In addition, thinking through strategies that help people understand and learn about, about sexuality. There are a couple of researchers that are at University of Alaska that are developing education resources that will help adolescents and others understand sexuality um, for individuals with developmental disabilities. And so those resources are available. It, they were produced through the Leadership in Education and Neurodevelopmental Disorders, the LEND training program at the University of Alaska. And I believe they're available um, on, on their website. So thinking through training and supports, that can also be helpful in the adolescent period. And I'll stop there, Matt, because I think we're running out of time. That, that sounds that sounds great. Thank you for sharing all of this. I think our listeners are feeling engaged and equipped to work with autistic individuals and address these three main areas in, in their intervention. So thank you again so much for these recommendations and resources. The last thing uh, we wanted to bring up and touch on is your work with the American Occupational Therapy Association in updating the systematic reviews and the practice guideline for individuals with autism spectrum disorder, uh, which was first published in 2016. So I, I understand that one change between the 2016 version and the current work includes identity first language. Can you share with, with us what identity first language is and what practitioners should consider when communicating with autistic clients? Absolutely. So identity first language is really being opposed to that person first language, which is used so frequently in OT education settings. And while person first language, such as the person with autism spectrum disorder, um, has been promoted, it really creates a dichotomy between the person and autism. And it makes it sound like it's a condition to be solved, cured, addressed, the person with X. I mean, we say things like the person with cancer, right? As if the cancer is separate from their experience. For many individuals on the spectrum, their experience of autism is part of who they are. It's part of their identity. And identity first language recognizes that that experience is 
is important to them. And so autistic adult reflects on that identity as the individual goes through life that um, Stephen Shore sometimes says, my, my autism can't be put into a bag and left at the door whenever I walk into a room. It is part of who I am. And I love that example because it really speaks to how autism is, is really about embracing one's gifts and strengths. And as OTs, if we think about identity first, as preferred by many adults on the spectrum, it reaffirms the value of promoting strengths, of promoting identity, and increasing somebody's self-worth through recognizing what amazing gifts they were given. And as a, as an OT, that is what is valuable to me. It's not about fixing or working on something that's really, really challenging with a client. It's really saying, what are your strengths? What are your gifts? Yes, you may have some functional difficulties, but how can we promote your success in whatever goals you have identified and work through the challenges that you would like to work on? And that identity first allows us to promote that sort of sense of self-worth. I do want to refer to a couple of resources so that our listeners can know that this has been published, um, the preference for identity first. So Kennedy, excuse me, Kenny and colleagues published an article in 2016 in the journal Autism called Which Terms Should Be Used to Describe Autism? Perspectives from the UK Autism Community. And in it, they describe how caregivers prefer person first, but that adults on the spectrum prefer identity first. So we need to be respectful of the people we're working with. So if you're working with caregivers, they may still prefer person first. We also should respect the needs of that autistic individual. So we may need to ask, not every autistic individual feels that this is part of their identity. So we can always ask and say, what do you prefer? Do you prefer that I refer to you as an autistic individual or individual on the autism spectrum. There are other articles. Um, Gernsbacher uh, in 2017 wrote an editorial called The Use of Person-First Language in Scholarly Writing and How It May Accentuate Stigma. This movement towards identity first has been supported in several autism journals, notably Autism and Adulthood. Author guidelines require identity first language, um, and they provide some excellent resources for people to learn about why identity first promotes well-being and a sense of identity and person first may pr promote stigma. And so number one, always ask what people prefer. Number two, recognize that caregivers and autistic individuals may differ in their preferences. And number three, recognize strengths and gifts and the identity of the person as the primary component whenever you engage in working with individuals on the spectrum. Thank you so much, Teal. I have to say that's probably the best I've ever heard identity first language explained. And thank you for, for quoting those resources as well. Um, I know I and, and our listeners really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, Teal. Well, I know this systematic review is still in process, so I won't ask you to go into too much detail about it. But I am aware of the question you are working on answering with the literature that's available. 
And that question is as follows. What are the person-centered, student-centered, or family-centered planning approaches within the scope of occupational therapy that foster achievement of participation goals for autistic persons and families of autistic individuals? And I know that's a, a big question. Can you answer that for me and the listeners right now <laughs> as, as best as you can? <laughs> well, we haven't reviewed the literature yet, but I can talk a little bit about why this question, how it came about and why it's important to answer. So this question is about what are the person-centered, student-centered, or family-centered planning approaches within the scope of OT? And this question arose through a focus group of autistic individuals who shared what um, what things were important for the occupational therapy profession to be thinking about in their work to uncover evidence that would support OT practice. And individuals in that focus group talked about the importance of focusing on the individual's goals and promoting through occupational therapy that sense of self-determination and allowing that person to be the focus of everything we do. And you might say, Matt, well, everything we do in OT is client-centered, but actually it's not. Oftentimes OTs do an evaluation, come up with the problem areas, and then develop a treatment plan to address it without consulting the individual really about those goals. And so the person-centered, student-centered, or family-centered planning approaches question will really allow us to dig into the literature to say what are the um, components of those approaches that are being used to promote sort of a shared ownership over the goals and what we're working on together. And I think a hallmark of these person-centered approaches is that the evaluation and the intervention are often interwoven And so while you might be doing an evaluation of a client about what their goals are and exploring what's important to them, you're also, through working on this process of, you know, identity and identifying what's important to them, you're working through a process of helping that individual refine what direction am I headed? And I'll give you an example. So we used a planning, a person-centered approach for planning employment for a young man on the spectrum. And in working with this young man, we engaged in a number of different assessments that allowed him to explore what his preferences were for a work environment, what his preferences were for supervision, what his preferences were for areas of interest. What were his interest areas? Was it transportation? Did he like working with computers? Did he like engaging in manual tasks, or did he like being out in the community? And through the process of really exploring and evaluating this student's strengths and his preferences for a work environment, and through conversations with him about his strengths, he started to recognize and shift his beliefs about himself and what was possible for him to achieve in future employment settings. And so, you know, he, he moved and shifted from a very passive approach to his goals. Like, you know, one of his, his goals was, I want people to like me, which is a very 
not internal locus of control uh, approach, right? You can't force others to like you, right? Like the, you have no control over that, that goal. Um, and through this process of self discovery, he ended up shifting his goals and, and, and shifted them to the point where it became more of an internal locus of control, like what he was going to do in order to meet new people. So instead of, I want people to like me, it became, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce myself to two new people in this uh, volunteer setting and, you know, have conversations with them about whatever it was that was important to him. So, you know, the process of self-discovery and that person-centered approach, uh, looking at strengths, it really, I think what we'll find um, is going to foster people's goals and outcomes in a much more holistic way than a practitioner-driven approach that's focused on what the practitioner feels is important to address. So sorry for that really long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I, I think that was a, a wonderful answer. And I think that really gets at the the crux of, of what occupational therapy is. It's it's one thing to help a, a client achieve a goal, but it's another thing completely to, to help a client learn how to reframe their own goals and start setting their own goals and working towards achieving their own goals and becoming more, I guess, self, self-sufficient and, and more enabled to, to achieve what they want to achieve on their own. Um, and if, if that's not the end goal of occupational therapy, then, then I'm not sure if my understanding of occupational therapy is right. <laughs> exactly. I hear you. I think I, I, I completely agree with you on that. So I, I hope that we all, you know, keep that in mind when we're working with clients. And I, I think that it's important to keep that in mind, not just for autistic clients, but for any clients we're working with. So do, do you know, Teal, when the systematic review will be updated and when our listeners can can find it on AOTA's website? Uh, our process for the systematic review has been different for uh, this autism review, mainly because We've involved autistic authors in the process and in our work to ensure their their involvement in the process. I know that the timeline has been a little bit delayed. So I think we're aiming to have a systematic review available by AOTA 2022 annual conference. I can't guarantee that it will be published, but hopefully the results will be available at that time. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. That's a, I'll be on the lookout for it. Our listeners will be on the lookout for it now. And is this the first systematic review with AOTA that involves autistic stakeholders? It is. So um, Dr. Christy Koenig and myself, when we were asked to be involved, really emphasized that there was there, it was important to ensure that any evidence-based practice guidelines involved autistic individuals in the development of the research questions, the review of the evidence, and the recommendations that were made. And AOTA has been very responsive to that request and has allowed for that process to unfold in a way that's respectful of the needs of our, of our colleagues um, to ensure that we didn't rush through the initial stages of the review process. And so, yes, to my knowledge, this is the first time that consumers have been involved in the development of the evidence. And I hope it's not the last. I hope that AOTA 
can see the value of this in other populations. And I'm pretty sure they will because AOTA has been a very open organization to work on, on, on these initiatives with. So I'm grateful for AOTA and their support. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much, Teal. I think we're coming to the last question uh, of our interview now. This is uh, what I like to call the golden nugget segment. So I'm going to ask you, Teal, if, if you could share one piece of knowledge with occupational therapy practitioners, what would it be? If I had to share one piece of knowledge with OT practitioners, I would say focus on your client's strengths and goals because so many people are focused on what somebody can't do throughout their life. And there isn't a successful person out there who spends their life focused on their deficits. So I would encourage OT practitioners to always, always look for, identify, communicate, and include a person's strengths and their special interests in their work and authentically involve their clients in the development of their own goals and keep and keep that in mind as as you proceed, whether it's through children or adults. Thank you so much. That's a, a wonderful golden nugget. And I think a, an excellent summary and conclusion to, to this interview. Uh, thank you again so much for your time, Teal, and for being featured on the show. It's been my pleasure, Matt. And thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of it. I also want to give a shout out to our asset team. There's no reason that I should be the focus of this. I really think that this is, um, I hope it's reflective of what uh, we've worked on together. So thanks again for allowing me to be that voice um, right now. Absolutely. Ne next time you'll have to bring some team members on as well. That would be great. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.